News. I'm Randall James, and with me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Random Pal. Evening. And tonight we have four special guests with us. Uh, with us tonight is Colin. Uh, hello. I am an autistic amateur tabletop developer. Perfect. We have Daniel. Hi there. Uh, I'm Daniel. I'm a game designer, cultural consultant, and I guess any award-winning podcaster based in Toronto. I'm also one of the uh, co-founders of uh, Level Up Gaming. Awesome. Great to have you. We have Naomi. Hi, I work with Daniel at Level Up Gaming. I'm an occupational therapist, and I also do consultation work for TRPGs. Awesome. And we have Caleb. Hi, I'm Caleb. I am an inclusive designer and researcher, an avid tabletop role-playing gamer, and I created uh, my master's level thesis, Neurodiversity Dungeons and Dragons, A Guide to Transforming and Enriching TTRPGs for Neurodivergent Adults, or the Neurodivergent Players Handbook. All right. Random, what are we going to do tonight? In a topic that is very dear to my heart, Caleb has written a fantastic, I'm going to call it a thesis, even though if you went and looked at it, that is very much not the format that you would expect to find it in, because it is in fact a thesis. And it's basically a write-up of a study into neurodiversity in explicitly 5th edition, but tabletop role-playing games in general, and using mechanics inside the game to represent neurodiversity in characters. And... I have, if you remember all the way back to why it's maybe worth listening to me about this stuff in episode zero, I have taught a class about taking skills from games and applying it to real life. And this is actually stuff that I've touched on um, in that class. And so this is something that I've been thinking about talking about for, oh, uh, five, six years at this point. And so to see it getting a real scholarly focus was something that I just immediately jumped on when we were introduced to this by one of the participants in our Discord. There's a lot of good stuff. I mean, you you can actually just go read the thesis. Uh, we'll, we'll have it linked in the show notes, and it's 80-odd pages, I think. But honestly, it's brilliant, and uh, it made me want to get these folks on and talk about both Caleb from an overall perspective Lots of questions for you, and then just everyone else, how you got to interact with this project and your thoughts on it. I think probably from the outset, Caleb, part of your requirement for the people participating in this was that they identify as neurodivergent. So could you maybe explain a little bit what that means just to you know get the ball rolling? Yeah. So there's a lot of complexities about that, and I realized I did not say the spiel about <laughs> what I was supposed to talk about uh, when we came here. Do you want to do that now? Yeah. 100%. Yeah, tell us about yourself. So I'm an inclusive designer and researcher and tabletop role-playing game enthusiast and accidental rubber duck, rubber duck collector. But yeah, to speak about neurodiversity uh, and neurodivergence, I had participants that identified specifically, not just diagnosed, because there's so many barriers to getting a diagnosis. There's obviously the financial and time barriers to it. And then there's also kind of the societal biases of what a neurodivergent person looks like for different kinds of neurodiversity. And so one of the conversations I actually had a lot with Naomi with conceiving of the project was 
we're often presented with this like dichotomy of neurodivergent and neurotypical but like what does a neurotypical person look like is there such a thing as a neurotypical person i would argue no Well, for context, I just got my rubber stamp. I went through the process because I kind of did this backwards where I didn't come into this as a neurodivergent person wanting to do a project, but it was like kind of questioning. And then after finishing my thesis and having time to, I was like, I'm going to go see what's up. And so then I have found out, I got my rubber stamp last week that I'm autistic and ADHD, but the idea that there is no neurotypical brain And I guess the easiest way to explain it is like, there's these like three levels. So neurodiversity is a collection of people. The collection of all of us, we are neurodiverse, just as we are biodiverse. We have different bodies and brains and neurobiology. Then an individual could be neurodivergent. That is basically, do you fall into a DSMV diagnostic criteria where you meet certain thresholds? But neurotypicality is basically just like, these like social norms that we're expected to behave to, but our brains might not. And so like I went through almost 30 years thinking I was neurotypical. And that's just because I could subscribe to a lot of these norms on the surface level, like outside looking in. I know Naomi has a lot of thoughts about this too, so I don't know if you want to pipe in. Oh man, yeah. I mean, so just to back up a little bit, Caleb was nice enough to invite me on as his uh advisor for his master's project. I'm an occupational therapist. I also work with Daniel Kwan at Level Up Games. So we do role-playing games, D&D, most of the time. And we work with youth and young adults who are neurodivergent. And I definitely think we shouldn't be thinking about it as a, as a binary. Perhaps it's more, either you could think of it as a spectrum, or I think something that Caleb spoke to was the essentially the social model of disability, where in the social model of disability, we say it's not the person that is disabled, it is the world that disables the individual, right? So you have, if everywhere in the world had brands and elevators, then physical limitations, we may not, like typical society, may not think of that as a disability. So same thing with neurodiversity. I think about it as, you know, we have these social norms and for people who perhaps struggle with them or feel like they have norms that are different, like equal but different, at the end of the day, people can identify any way they like. I think that's what's wonderful about the label of neurodiversity is if you feel like you're, you think a little differently or you do things a little differently, like you can embrace that term. And I'm really happy to see that Caleb's uh, story, I think, is is a little bit similar to mine in terms of like, I, I haven't had a rubber stamp, but I definitely. It's expensive. So <laughs> it's a very expensive rubber stamp. Yeah. And you know, and then there's a lot of like issues around like diagnosis and like females are underdiagnosed, for example, with ADHD and ASD. And, you know, like I even, when I was younger, I even went into to be tested for ASD and I didn't meet, apparently I scored high, but not enough to meet the threshold. So I, to Caleb's point, I think we need to let people decide for themselves and we could get into a whole other conversation around labeling, but we want to talk about RPGs because they're awesome. We we do want to bring this into RPGs, but I do maybe want to open a little bit of the floor to talk about, I, I hear this idea that I think Caleb and Naomi both presented 
that it's important to recognize both neurodiversity in the sense that we all have a plethora of thought due to our backgrounds, due to the way that we approach the world, due to the way that we approach social situations, like our general way of thinking, but that individuals who are neurodivergent have a particular way of thinking and a particular way of dealing with social uh, issues. So in the past few companies I've worked for, I've really loved the welcoming of diversity of thought. But one of the things that we've always talked about is everybody has to be comfortable to bring what they can bring. And if you're not putting people in an environment to succeed in bringing their thoughts forward, you're not just doing them a disservice, you're doing your organization a disservice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I know that we're going to touch on that later. Real quick, a thing that I want to cut in with DSM, that it, so DSMV is the DSM-5, which you can look up. It's a book full of diagnosis criteria, basically, and ASD uh, that Naomi, uh, Naomi was talking about a moment ago, autism spectrum disorder. Okay. We'll have links in the show notes. Yeah, sorry. That's like medical right. No, no, believe model, me. We, we are all jargon. guilty yeah. of throwing jargon in there and then having, usually it's Randall who comes along and says, uh, pretend that I haven't been doing this for 20 years. Could you please <laughs> tell me what you meant? Yeah. It's, it's, like it's the, the, the same thing edition. for me every week. <laughs> exactly, Yeah. <laughs> Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. This felt pretty advanced to me. Um, <laughs> oh boy! But yeah, so I yeah I I, I did want to I I really wanted to hit on the idea that we as a society should be pushing forward to find a way to yeah to let people contribute what they want because ultimately I think we all have a lot to gain from it. Yeah, and I, I guess it's important to say that from my thesis perspective, approaching from primarily a social model of disability, which is that the environment disables us, not our inherent abilities, but also kind of a mixed model because acknowledging people have different experiences and that like if there were certain treatments that were not harmful uh, or abusive, that they would want to like medically treat some of their symptoms to feel less anxious or to have a better quality of life and acknowledging that that's some people's experience. But a lot of this project uh, and, like, my work, I try to fit in with the neurodiversity movement, the social justice aspect about seeking civil rights and equality and respect and societal inclusion, like like you just spoke about. I mean, there's, like, so many aspects of disability that are really important, such as, like, when we talk about marriage equality, like, in queer context, but, like, disabled people don't have marriage equality. And like, that's like a whole other thing aside from this, but I think it's important that the more representation we have of disabled people, and I guess I should mention they don't have marriage equality because if your spouse makes too much money, then you're not eligible for social supports. And so then people aren't able to get money because they can't get the social, social supports from their government. And that's in many quote, quote, first world developed nations. And that's the other piece of this. I think it's important. It's like, it's not just like, going through the like therapeutic aspects of TTRPGs, which are hugely important, but also just representing them like combat wheelchair and like, just like showing that disabled people exist and they have existed for millennia. Or, you know, like ramps in ramps, (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we will absolutely link back. We had a episode that talked about that a decent amount with the Errata 3.0 that came out. um, And that, got us into a longer conversation that talked about things like the combat wheelchair. So uh, definitely go listen to that. All right. So fabulous groundwork laid. So the, the before you play section in your thesis had a lot of interesting stuff. A thing that I have uh, pulled out of my own admittedly far less scholastic and much more haphazard research. So you talk about how 
there seems to be a higher draw towards things like TTRPGs among the neurodivergent community because of the clear social rules. During this process, did you find that reinforced? Did you find that, did, did you actually like come to that conclusion afterwards? Is that something that you went in with? And what are your thoughts about the thing that I had noticed that I was bringing up in my class where um, there's also a kind of heightened desire for escapism with the constant masking that people have to do? Mm -hmm. So initially going in, like I did have the theory about rules because there, like there's so many rules in D&D. I admittedly, not enough of them, but that's why there's a rule book. But there's like turn orders and there's like certain ways people have of signaling when to speak. And so I kind of had this like proto theory going in that I confirmed with like my background research. Like I think there's like the really good work uh, by Fine about the autistic LARP camp where they talk about how the, the, the autistic children thrived because of the like rules that were laid out. Um, and some of these are intrinsic to the game. Some of them are community-based. But I think a big thing that Naomi and Daniel had specifically pointed out to me that I hadn't as considered as big a part of it is that, so like D&D, &D, and also a lot of my participants mentioned this, that irrespective of your ability in real life, your D&D &D character can do it. You may be very weak and unwise, but your D and D character may be the strongest, wisest person ever, but you don't have to perform that. You don't have to do it. You can just like imagine that experience and go into it. And that was a big thing is that you can kind of try different personas. So an element of escapism, but I think it's also, Naomi, you put this so well and I can't remember how you put it, but it was like, it's the safety, the safety to fail at like, exploring yourself basically i mean you both have worked worked more doing it like in terms think, of hours the thing me. we talked about is that uh was it failure is as safe as success mm -hmm. is that what mm -hmm. you're referring to and just the idea that you can like take your time and think about you know when the when the gm says okay what do you want to do you can stop and pause and reflect you can try things out. Depending on the situation, you might even get a do-over. But if you try something out and it <laughs> catastrophically fails, it's it's fine. It's just a game. But you can kind of reflect on that and think, okay, well, I I failed, and and you know maybe that didn't feel great, but the story kept going. In fact, the story was kind of a little more interesting because of it. So I think that safe space to kind of try different things out is really, really helpful because I guess in the real world, social interactions can be so high stakes. In tabletop RPGs, death of your character is often a possible consequence. Do you find that that affects the safety to fail concept? Personally, no. The death, death could be super interesting, especially if you bring in mechanics from like indie TTRPGs as well. I mean, there was a, a fairly large safety net in 5th edition D&D, &D, uh, especially with, you know, death saves. 
Um, that said, you know, especially if you're playing D&D remotely and you're using different digital tools, or even if you're playing behind a screen using physical dice, the, the GM has the power to alter the fate of characters, right? Read the room. Uh, if death is interesting and death is something that a player wants to explore, well, you certainly can do that. And if their character dies, you can make it a part of the story. Uh, I think, you know, uh, games like Dungeon World handle death really well. Uh, I don't know if you folks have played that. I don't think we've had a chance. No, yet. it's on the list. So when you when you die in Dungeon World, uh, you get a roll, and the results of the roll, basically, uh, to simplify it, dictates your fate. You may come back to life, but you have to strike a deal with an otherworldly patron. Um, and that's built into the mechanics of the game. Uh, Dungeon World is also a really interesting game when you compare it to D&D, given that you gain XP from failure rather than from success, which is something that D&D doesn't handle very well. That's actually really interesting. That's like so much more true to life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It's, it's life. You, you learn from mistakes. And, and that game kind of builds that in. A, a lot of other games handle, honestly, the conversation about experience is something that I think D&D handles poorly as well. Hmm. That makes sense. I want to I ask another question in this. In a, a tabletop setting, you can ask the game master how the rules work or how we're going to adjudicate the interaction. So it isn't just you have to make a choice and live with it. And yeah, the consequences are pretty light. But you also have the opportunity to get clarification about what can I do? What can't I do? What's appropriate? Do you feel like that aspect is also interesting? Is that for all? Is that for all of us? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the magic of, of it, right? It's a conversation. You're you're negotiating, right? You're negotiating over how you will actually handle risk, and and what how you can approach risk. Um, I think that's the most interesting part because you could literally do anything in a game. Well, okay. And- to oh, add ahead. on to that too, uh, oh sorry, random. Um, to to add on to that, I mean, it's such a collaborative effort too. I mean, the best D and D or best TRPG campaigns happen when you know you're working as a team to tell the story, or everybody's on board with that, right? And I know Daniel is all about, you know, he's not definitely definitely not the arbiter of good and evil and and what happens in the game. T- to an extent, you you have to, you know provide boundaries around what can and can't happen, but it's about the team coming together and telling a cool story. And I think it just opens up that conversation around, like, I'm just thinking about in, in, in real life, how often is clarifying, like, what, what's the purpose of our social interaction and what am I, what is expected of me? And those discussions are not really baked into, you know, a lot of our conversations outside a game so it's so cool how you know D and other trpgs have that like as a specific part of the process uh, and and speaking of and what a fantastic segue so one of the other things that you talked about in that before you play section so you were talking about this concept of co-design that you wanted to uh, bring in to really help the players incorporate how they wanted both your unique mechanics, which we'll get to in a moment, and also just how the story was going to go. Between that and the other safety tools that you talk about, how would you say that that made the game function compared to other games that you've seen that didn't have those? Yeah. Um, Colin, feel free to jump in, because I did a lot of my like pre-pre-planning before I even got to like doing anything with Colin, because... Like, I kind of felt like I was like, I'm insane. I'm going to do a thesis on 
Dungeons and Dragons and people were like doing things that felt a lot more practical, <laughs> which like they weren't. It's just different strokes for different folks. But so I did a lot of talking through about it because we're like, oh, like these rules are very important safety tools. But the thing about D&D, like when Colin and I would talk through, it's very prescriptive. It's like, if you want to be a monk, you have to be this. And like a lot of things that we discussed was the idea of inherently evil races and about the problematic thing there. And like, you know, there's a lot of cultural appropriation in certain, in certain, in a lot of the different racial breakdowns. And it's like kind of prescriptive to put that onto somebody to be like, well, if I'm going to design disability in a game, this is how disability is. When we know ethno-racial experiences are very varied across people and so are disability experiences. And so I felt it was very important to highlight that like no two autistic people are the same, no two ADHD. Colin, you want to jump in? Yes. I think as, as somebody with experience in tabletop games uh, and Specifically, I absolutely love homebrew. I, I, I almost do nothing straight out of the box. And I, one aspect of tabletop games that I love is the flexibility. And I love when, you know, the, the mechanics feed into the story and the story feeds into the mechanics. And that is a large part of why I think this idea of custom making the, I, I guess tailor making would be a better phrase. Either way, the the disability mechanics for individual characters. And I think it's also, it helped demystify it because in our group, the only people who had done homebrew were people who had DM'd. So there's these people who had been playing for you know, I think our longest players have been playing for decades and they had never homebrewed. It's because it, it felt something that was not accessible to them because it's like, well, I'm not a game designer. It's like, here's the secret to design. Anyone can do it. <laughs> it's just gatekept. Like, <laughs> all it is is making something, trying it, and changing it to how you like. And yeah. that's, that's ultimately uh, what they did. And there's a lot of constraints because, like, it was a master's level research project we had five weeks to play so that's obviously not enough time to user test something um like something where like with with level of gaming where you could do like 14 weeks you could get so much more iteration and connection to your to your mechanic uh so to speak but it also like helped embedded that like it's not just my project because i was also very careful because at the time i was like I'm not neurodivergent, so, like, I can't tell these people what to do. Like, psych. So I wanted to make sure, like, other people's vices were were centered, and that turned out to not to be as big as an issue as I thought it was. But, I mean, Daniel's done tons of, of homebrew and, and creation, so I don't know if you have an opinion on it. Oh, I love homebrew. I think it's better than anything. I uh, I think it, you know listeners might be familiar with my work. I don't. Um, I was one of the uh, co-authors of Candlekeep Mysteries. Um, I wrote the twelfth level adventure that's in that book, and I've done work with a lot of other publishers. And I think the best 
I mean, the, the, the best work that and the most enjoyable games that I've played are all home games uh, over anything that I've been hired to do. But that's because you have time to do it. I think with Level Up Gaming, I've been doing it since 2016, which I realize now is a really long time. We've been, we've been doing it for six years. And the program that Naomi and I are currently running right now is vastly different than the very first one we did. Like the tools that we're using, the stories we're telling, some of the participants are even the same. And just, we've just constantly adapted. And I think that's the cool thing about tabletop RPGs and not just D&D. And it's that, you know, not only are you trying to find a, a natural point in which you can marry the narrative and the mechanics, not only for like the system itself, um, but for also your, your group and your table, um, because there are, there are levels to which these two interact. But what's interesting is that, you know, we always talk about that session zero, but really as like a group and as a GM, you're constantly adapting to the needs of, you know, every other person at the table, right? This is a conversation. You are actively sort of negotiating how things are happening, you are making compromises for each other, not only from a narrative perspective to allow people to have space, but also from a mechanical perspective to, to make your table more inclusive to, to those around you. But yeah, I don't know how I got there, but <laughs> it's very interesting to have this sort of long form conversation about this, given that not only are we, you know, talking about making D&D more accessible, but we're talking about making D&D and other games more accessible at a time when gaming groups are fundamentally inaccessible. As you talked about, you know, when you've been running various programs across the years, have you introduced over time some of these more like safety tools and the uh, the co-design that Caleb talked about? Or is this something where like they were always there? Or, you know, basically I'm I'm really curious what your experience has been with adding these in and how it's improved the the game. I mean, for me, co-design is always a part of it. That's the session zero is fundamentally that co-design concept that Caleb talks about, right? Um, but it's adding things to your session zero sort of toolbox. And that's the thing I'm really interested in. And, and, you know, it's finding those things in other tabletop RPGs. I mean, over the years, we've definitely gone and tried different um, like tools to make the game more accessible um, from like how we use terrain and battle maps um, I certainly really miss doing that and how we basically negotiate space at the table to the kind of themes. We've gone from having an OT who was sort of a um, sort of a passive observer and maybe pseudo arbitrator if necessary to having the OT be a sort of a, a surrogate character that's actually an active part of the narrative. Um, you say OT. OT stands for? Occupational therapist. Perfect. That's, okay. that's me. Naomi at the table. Yeah. So, so in in our game, Naomi not only serves as the occupational therapist in the group, but is also a character in the story. Right now, we're experimenting with something a little bit different, where this surrogate character is actually um, has a pseudo leadership role too. Um, we started our game marooned on island, and well, Naomi's character was the captain of the ship that had unfortunately chartered them. Um, and had ended up in this unfortunate scenario. But we, we've done a lot. I think Naomi, in the past two years, uh, even doing level up gaming remotely, we've done almost, I think we've done almost eight programs 
almost eight programs. And I mean, the latest one we're doing is very different from the first one we did. And they're different, be- not just because we're trying to, like, it's like you said, I mean, I don't even see it as, it's, there's an evolution, I guess. We do learn what works and what doesn't generally, but every single time we say, okay, here's our, here's our crew, if you don't mind using the ship metaphor, being, being the captain in the most recent campaign. But what do what are people want out of the game and, and what are people liking and disliking? And, you know, it's so neat to see, you know, Daniel and I, like we had our, our session today and we had a chat after and just saying, you know, one of our characters really enjoys really, really embracing that barbarian role. So let's, you know, let's try to see if we can guide them towards a city so that, you know, they realize that, if you smash things all the time, you might get yourself thrown in jail. So just kind of resonating with what everybody's bringing to the table. And the other cool thing, though, on the other hand, you know, things that kind of stick around, like one thing I really like that we came up with was an exploration order. So, you know, it's it's great to have that kind of unstructured space where anybody can jump in if they want. But we also were found at finding that when it we had a new map or a new area, people kind of froze up and they didn't really know, okay, are you going to go? And like, what are you going to do? And so we roll for exploration order from time to time. And everybody now knows to expect, okay, I'm going to have a moment in the spotlight. I can always pass if I want, but you know, now I know I can make a decision. So yeah, it's just really cool how over the last couple of years, you and I have kind of put our heads together and come up with different ways to shape the game to make it the best experience possible. I think it's really interesting what I feel like I heard you implicitly say is that you've had the evolution of it over time because you've learned things that you want to try, you found things that you think are particularly effective, but because you tend to have different groups of people, the co-collaboration, the collaboration, you know, the building this world (laughs) together is ultimately giving you a very different experience each time you execute on this. Um, I think that's really fascinating. I I want to pose the question you know, when we think of this as, as strictly a social game versus an opportunity for um, for for helping people develop in that co-creation time period, sometimes, and I feel like this also came out, uh, Caleb, Caleb, in your work, that sometimes you are having a conversation where you're saying, okay, look, do we want to um, stretch boundary? You know, do we want to get a little bit uncomfortable so we can practice the skills so we can develop something versus do I just want to be comfortable and have fun? I can imagine like a character where on or a character a, a player a person who on some days I'm up to the challenge and I want to grow and I want to try these things and some days I'm not having the best day I'm here cuz I want to be but I I can't handle that day did you have this experience yeah hugely so I didn't play like I was purely the observer in it to take notes but there was kind of the recurring theme in the group of what we call bad brain days and it was just like I'm not in it. Like I'm, I'm having trouble. I've never heard it. I understand it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so like in the group, they'd be like, I cannot make words today. So like, I'm really struggling. So I'm going to like take a back seat or that I'm having a bad brain day. I don't really want to delve into this. And I think with the co-design in particular, um, so with co-design, we did like what's called a co-design activity. So like in uh, interaction design or like other design fields, they have like certain uh, design sprint activities. So we did what's called Rosebud Thorn. So Rose, what's what's good, Bud, what's bad, Thorn, pain point. And in that, 
we had a like a large opportunity to be vulnerable, which I think was like the the biggest benefit of the project was that people could talk about their bad experiences. Like people talked about like having really what I would call traumatic past experience TTRPGs, like having, you know, non-consensual sexual assault happen to them, trigger warning, sorry, and having these things happen to them in game that they did not consent to. And these dynamics, which A, can put you off the games entirely and like can bring up trauma and, and these are really dangerous things. I lost point A. I got point B, but I don't have point A. I'm so sorry. What were we? That's what happens. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, and, yeah. and that's wonderful. And, and honestly, that that's a lot about why we're doing this. You know, there's behind the curtain. There's definitely some notes here, as there is for most of our shows. But we're just talking. So <laughs> I am very grateful to to get your thoughts on that. And speaking of. I definitely want to shift this a little bit. So we do, as a website in general, tend to focus a little bit more on mechanics of things. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that really caught my eye in your thesis was this using game mechanics to represent real-world disabilities and having players come up with, in this co-design process, what their character's neurodivergence would look like. As a longtime optimizer, I will occasionally fall into the bad habit of immediately looking for the way to make something do do more than was intended. Mm -hmm. As I was looking through everything, I really enjoyed some of the mechanics, and there's one in particular that stood out to me: that the self abnegation that one of your characters picked. That seemed like, man, if I if I read this in a rule book, I would immediately try to optimize around this. So, did do you find that? after people had designed these, that they actually use them to foster roleplay? I have to you stop you for a second. Uh, okay. You said the word uh, self-abnegation. I sure and, did. And I'm not prepared for that. <laughs> I wasn't either. I don't actually still know what it means, but that's what it was called <laughs> in the thing. Okay. Someone well, so smarter maybe... than us? Uh, <laughs> anyone have a dictionary? Please. So yeah, two, two steps. What is self-abnegation? And then, Caleb, maybe you could describe what the, the manifestation of the mechanic looked like as well. And then, right, yeah. let's come back and let's... let's... I'm on board. Um, okay. Anyone correct me. My understanding of self-abnegation is that it's basically doing things for others at the expense of your own health or mental health. Okay. I could be deeply wrong. That is my understanding. We're going to make a deal. And for probably not the first time ever, we'll link like a dictionary in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll, I'll commit now. If it's wildly off, uh, producer Dan's just going to cut this whole thing. We're going to, we're going to keep going. Self-abnegation is. <laughs> it's, 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 it's self-abnegation is basically the denial of one's own interest in favor of so, others. Yes. He okay. spot on. Perfect. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not far there you off. go. And the mechanic of that, Caleb. Yes. And I should say the participant named that. I did not name any of these. That is a five-star letter Scrabble word. I thought even how Scrabble works. But anyway. <laughs> no, it is now. It is now. <laughs> Basically, this mechanic was that they could re-roll any failure um, on a strength or wisdom-based skill uh, or saving throw, skill check or saving throw. But then they would take a penalty to their intelligence, charisma, or dexterity saving throws. And basically, you could use it as much as you want, but you could only do it once per roll, and it would be cumulative. And so this participant designed it to kind of reflect 
uh, the effect of masking particularly. So this idea that like, oh, like this is really hard for me. I'm not doing well, but I'm going to burn myself out or have this like internal drain of energy to perform well, but I'm going to pay for it later. And that was kind of a recurring theme, like the idea of spoons, uh, spoon theory with self-abnegation. This kind of came out near the end because all the, all the participants kind of felt like they liked their design, but didn't have enough time to actually have the physical mechanical outcomes happen. A lot of what happened was it influenced their role play more. So even if it was triggered, they would have, it was, it was more about how they interacted with each other, which is really interesting because they said, I've never gotten to this into role play before, um, which is what they reported. And so like they were a lot more uh, attuned to their characters and more invested in their outcomes because these mechanics kind of, I don't know what word I want to use, but the mechanics kind of in had more motivated details. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the, the mechanics inspired their actions a lot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It was it was more definitive and illustrative of what the character could be. It, it almost feels like what what you're saying is like even the introspection, the having the the thought of if I had to take uh, how I feel or something that I want to work on or something that I at least want to think about, and I have to go through the process of thinking about how to turn it into a mechanic. For a lot of folks, that might be more powerful than than actually using the mechanic that you came up with. Yeah. I definitely found that. And then what was interesting was, so they make this mechanic and they have this introspective process and then they role play it. And at the end they were like, I'm really hard on myself. Like I'm really not as bad as I think I am. Like I am a smart person. I am creative. I can do these things. And I made my character the absolute worst I think of me. And it was like, it was interesting to see them have this process and like self-esteem building. Yeah. Like sad as well, but like, <laughs> no, no, good. that feels like a win though. That, that sincerely feels like, yeah. If, if they can think back to that every time they are feeling bad down on themselves, like that's ourselves, right? Like that's a people. Yeah. I like that. People are hard. It's a really powerful <laughs> moment, isn't it? Yeah. That kind of stuff. I feel like therapists who don't play TRPGs are like hoping that, the people that they work with will have these insights and this stuff is coming out through a game, which is, I guess, this is the kind of stuff that really drew me into looking at TRPGs as a, as a tool for change. And like, it's so cool to, to see Caleb seeing those sorts of things and that it's not just something that you can get, you can develop and grow as a person just whether obviously therapy is great, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'll be slightly biased, but at the same time, you think you can use games at any time, you know, with the right people and the right safety tools to explore your identity and, and who you are. It's really, really powerful. Absolutely. Now, Caleb, so the game ran for five weeks, the, the length of your study, correct? And yeah, if I remember correctly, um, the players in your study were all strangers. Uh, yeah, essentially. Like, some were acquaintances, um, just by, like, default of, like, TTRPG, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, small group interests. Yeah, ultimately strangers. And, um, like, I should say, like, we, we're still playing that group bi-weekly now, but, like, they chose to continue it. They asked me to join, and, like, I, I could now because I wasn't, like, researching them. <laughs> 
so like i don't i don't speak of anything that we do like after the fact but they're like this is fun so i made my own character that was neurodivergent and and we we continue to play so like they've they've come out of friendship with it what a fun way to break the fourth wall the other direction wander <laughs> yeah. into the thing that you're observing that sounds amazing <laughs> that is fantastic um so in five weeks, you took a group of mostly strangers, had moments of significant personal growth, explored neurodiversity based on the mechanics that the players had made for themselves. And you did that in five sessions, again, with people who mostly didn't know each other beforehand. That seems incredibly impressive. I have not like had a game where i played with strangers that like ever lasted beyond three so like i don't know how it's happening but like it's it's going and like we're still playing with the neurodiversity mechanics and we're still doing it and they're they're iterating on now that's great and like even characters because we have this like safe space they're like feel comfortable explore one person chose to completely re-roll their character and they're like i'm gonna explore neurodivergent stuff but also i want to explore gender presentation so we're going to like mix it up and so because we have the safe space the but and i think that really beautifully speaks both to the, the safety tools that you laid out at the start the power that that and the co-design gives to the players to feel like yes this is actually a safe space even though this is strangers you know i can open up about this disability which you know is a thing that societally we definitely still have some issues with people being embarrassed about or you know even trying to hide in some ways getting that sort of personal revelation getting that sort of bond with people in a small double digit number of hours is mm -hmm. incredible to that point there's a lot of things that i've talked about in in the class that i think that you can get from D D, and you really had this beautiful talk about this towards the end of your thesis about psychological safety you basically you practice these skills in tabletop role-playing games you know you practice adaptability as a dm a lot more but as a player absolutely you know you need to be able to react to any of these situations that you're placed in and advance with confidence it feels like a lot of these you're really able to have training wheels on because, you know, like you talked about earlier, you can have, I know that I, I'm going to do something here, but I do need to take a few minutes to just collect my thoughts and, and think about how I am going to step forward. And so then you, you know that you're stepping forward with that, at least confident that this is what you wanted and you're not being rushed into something. Uh, and then when you do decide to step out with that, then you are building the story with these, you know, three, four, five, whatever other people, and effectively communicating your intention behind your action is going to get you such good practice for this. With all of that and, and with this, this concept of psychological safety, do you think that practicing this sort of stuff in the game, and, and, and this is... Maybe more a question for uh, Naomi. Like, have you seen this translate into increased proficiency with these skills? Pun not intended that time, as they take this sort of stuff into the real world. This is a tough one because I don't get to follow people into the real world, so I have to rely on what people are are telling me. As an OT, 
people have certainly told me this game has helped me feel more like I can kind of think on my feet in a meeting or, you know, I can speak up a little bit more and self-advocate or kind of work through a problem or so I definitely hear people telling me those sorts of things. I can definitely speak to that being my own experience as somebody who's played TRPGs. So, and this is like why we need to do more research. I mean, I'm working on a research project as well. I hope to have it published in a in hopefully a year. These things take a little longer sometimes. We need to we need to explore this. I'm really happy that Caleb has taken this huge first step into looking at how you know, neurodivergent folks benefit from the game. There's definitely something to it. I think that myself and Caleb and Daniel and many more people are seeing that these skills are somehow making their way from inside the game to outside. Caleb, I don't know if you have anything to add as well. Yeah, I have. I mean, I have a lot (laughs) of thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things, one of the moments like in the study that I thought was really beautiful and interesting was seeing characters role play discussions about psychological safety and boundaries in the game. Um, I do write about it. I don't remember the page number, but they talk about, oh, this is giving my character stress. This strategy gives me stress. Can we talk about how we approach these situations so we can not have my character's self-abnegation like be triggered and then we all die? And seeing them, like, they role-played. Like, I write about it briefly, but it was, like, a full, like, half-hour conversation (laughs) about what do you need? What do you need? These are my triggers. These are my, like, it was amazing. And I think that speaks to it. And the other piece of being, like, play is one of the most important learning tools that we have. We prioritize it so much in, like, early childhood, but we basically stop as adults. Well, some think, of us do. Some of us do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it's it's the most, like, important thing. I mean, there's so many, like, like Leo Vyotsky's theory of scaffolding and all these, like, learning theories about how we build these, these skills and go into flow states without realizing, which is, like, what makes it fun because you're learning and you don't know it. But, like, I've personally, from playing TTRPGs, And again, this was me being like, I'm neurotypical, Uh," being like, I'm learning to self-advocate and like do these things and communicate better. I I don't know if if Colin could speak to it because we've kind of through this project introduced more safety tools into like our games and into our everyday life to like communicate boundaries. Um, I don't know if you have a piece to say about it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think he summed it up pretty well there, but I, I will acknowledge that a lot of these concepts that you introduced to me and I helped you iterate on for your thesis, I wholeheartedly agree that they're fantastic and worthy of further study and iteration. Even the podcasts, I don't want to reveal the secrets, but like (laughs) the whole hand signals thing, the stress that alleviated from me and you explaining it to me, can we just have this in everyday life? Like that's, <laughs> that's what I need. But, so peek behind the curtain for listeners, since I don't think we've discussed this on the podcast, we have a small system of hand signals that we use to convey when people would like to jump in or move between topics or conclude a topic. And uh, yes, we do that because it makes things less stressful for us too. Yeah. And it further peek behind the scenes. When you hear me stomping on somebody else, it's usually because I'm doing it for effect, not because we failed the hand signals. 
I meant to do that. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good point that Caleb brought up or that we just brought up together is that making these rules or having these rules available, it benefits not just neurodiverse people, it can benefit everybody. I mean, whether it's exploring your own identity, I mean, like it's come up again and again, you know, this journey that Caleb took on his research helped him figure out who he was in a, in a way. But, uh, but going back to these kind of, it's a concept, I don't know if anyone's heard of it, called universal design. So basically, we do these things, they're small changes the way we interact socially or, or approach things, and they not only have a huge benefit to neurodiverse people or people with disabilities, but I feel like more often than not, you know, able-bodied or neurotypical folks are kind of like, you know what, this is, this is this ain't bad. Like, this is actually kind of helping me out. So but, uh, I feel like the, the book, right, the book or the thesis that Caleb put out, anybody could read it and probably get something out of it that would make their game better or more fun. Yeah, there, there was a parallel to an amusing moment that happened in our Discord where, um, you know, we, we were talking about the combat wheelchair and I just sort of went off on this little mini rant about, like, I, I understand that some people were worried about the power level for the rarity, but, you know, you don't have to be disabled to use the combat wheelchair. It's there for everyone. You can just use it. That sort of immediate reframe for people is like, oh, I guess that that's not really the thing that I'm complaining about, is it? Well, and not to get like weirdly technical or, or nerdy, but from an inclusive design perspective, 80% of people will become disabled in their lifetime, whether through aging, life circumstance, or um, even temporary temporary disabilities. Like we think of disability as being kind of like yes, no thing. If you break your both of your arms, can you use a door handle? No, you are disabled from entering that. You need help. That is a temporary disability. And the interesting part about designing these mechanics was like, well, disability is not stagnant either. Your experience of it is going to ebb and flow and your needs are going to change based on the situation. So seeing how they would design or or role play or choose to initiate their mechanics where like I can choose to re-roll depending on the situation was really interesting, but also like not that we're like appropriating disability, but like statistically we will become disabled in our lifetime. And I, I think people have a hard time reconciling that. And not that it's an opportunity to be like, what would that be like? But we shouldn't stigmatize being disabled. Like it's just something that happens. Transitioning that in, into the, you know, thinking about how, how does playing these characters with these, these differences affect us in real life. I, I really just want to open the floor up to you for a few minutes and just your whole section on emancipatory bleed was fascinating. And just kind of, if you want to throw some highlights at me, that would be awesome. So that's like building off of the work of Janaya Kemper, who is a uh, autoethnographer looking at tabletop role-playing games and LARP games. A lot of her work that influenced that was... May I ask, Greg, you said auto... Autoethnography. So ethnography being the study of people, but auto is like internal. So she okay. uh, does ethnography on her own experiences of LARPing. Okay, good. Uh, they're a, a black person, and so a lot of their work focus on like 
the racialized context of their interaction with CTRPGs. This LARP that they played, Battle of Primrose Park, was a, like a, a Jane Austen LARP, which is like a very white <laughs> setting historically. And so playing this like aged widower and being a, a, a black uh, person, like a dealing with the different context of that. And so like the theory of bleed basically being like real life filters into the game, game filters into real life was saying, but there's also capacity for building skills for for emancipation and and liberation, like self-advocacy, like we were talking about earlier. So basically making that, recognizing like the, the capacity to like explore how to stand up for yourself and carve out a space for yourself in the world. Like that's a very like overview way of doing it, but like players that live with complex marginalizations don't necessarily get to explore those in a safe way. And so, um, and by that, I mean their ethnicity, their race, their gender, their sexuality, their ability, their neurodiversity, like all these things, you know, intersectional identity affect how the world interacts with them and they interact with the world. And so being able to actually represent that experience in the game, they can practice basically advocating. I said that in a very long way, but like, it's a, it's an incredible concept. And like, I highly recommend everyone read it. Um, It's not just foundational and understanding it from an academic perspective, but it's changed how I've played the game. It seems like what you're really getting at is that sort of these these concepts that we've been talking about where, you know, people are realizing, oh, I, I have gotten to practice, you know, these skills or I have gotten to experience in a more safe setting a thing that I'm maybe less comfortable presenting in real life and just taking that idea and doing it intentionally, you know, if you're mm-hmm. like leaning into, okay, you know, maybe I do want to say maybe I am questioning my gender expression. Maybe I intentionally want to role play that in the game so that I can see what it's like in a setting where, you know, we have built in these safety mechanisms and then the concept there for the emancipatory bleed is, okay, now that I have done this in a game, now that I've seen that I can do this and really enjoy this sort of state of being, bringing that back into real life, which is, I, I'm, you know, I, I've, I've, I've always kind of come at this as the, like, these things have been done accidentally. So seeing this whole concept of someone taking this and doing it on purpose was really cool to me. Yeah. And the other thing, like the thing I say in my, my MRP, which is the first step to building a better world is imagining it. This gives you the capacity to imagine like, what is a world if we didn't stigmatize people for these different parts of themselves and the collection of those parts of themselves. And like as a GM or players, if you decide that is something you're comfortable exploring, you can literally role play out those scenarios of, Oh, this person has moved into town and they're a bigot. Let's deal with that. Hopefully you're not going to fighting 101, but like you can confront those ideas and 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 role play that. Like there are the all these the world you, you can imagine it. If you can imagine it, you can build it. We can imagine a better world and we can play it. And that is literally a design to creating it in our world. Well, I am thrilled that all four of you came on and 
talked to us about this stuff, it really just when when this got brought up and I got to to read through this, I was immediately looking forward to this and was not disappointed. So thank you very much, everybody. It's it's been great to have you. No, absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you to the Red Reverend on the RPG Discord for recommending Caleb's work. We all enjoyed reading it. And Caleb, we enjoyed talking to you today. Colin, I want to say thank you very much for being with us. No problem. I'm happy that I could do what I could. No, we definitely enjoyed you. Thank you for your contributions. Daniel, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Yeah, and if uh, you know if folks are interested in you know learning more about you know what we do, you can. Uh, I guess you could check out my podcast, uh, the Asians Represent podcast. Um, we we're all about confronting those difficult ideas and having those tough conversations. So much so that we uh, we've been doing it for several years at this point. Um, but yeah, you can find uh, basically find every, anything I do game related uh, on Twitter, and from my Twitter profile, I guess is the root of everything. Uh, so you can find me there at uh, Daniel H Kwan on Twitter. That's a K W A N. Perfect. And we will stick uh, links in the show notes to any social media that gets shared here. Uh, any links that anybody shares here. That way, if you're looking for it, you're listening to this right now, go to the show notes. It's going to be there. Naomi, thank you very much for being with us. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Uh, much like Daniel, the Twitter is is my hub for of activity. I, uh, In addition to doing my OT stuff on there, I tweet about the game stuff I'm involved in. I would like to say that, you know, if you liked what you heard, of the kind of work that Caleb was doing, you will probably like the Limitless Heroics uh, project from Wormworks Publishing. I'm currently doing some uh, sensitivity consultation, but it's essentially a compendium of many conditions and disabilities, or you know, whether it's physical or um, neurodivergent or mental illness uh, mechanics that will allow you to bring some of the stuff into your own game so again that's limitless heroics and otherwise you can come and chat with me on twitter anytime perfect all right thanks a lot and uh caleb definitely thank you for being with us we enjoyed your work no problem you can connect with me i'm qrnrd which is queer nerd without vowels on twitter or pretty much anywhere that there's social media and if you want to read my thesis it sounds intimidating because it's a thesis i swear it's not it's a game module it's it's written in plain language so that it can reach as many people and be implemented as by as many people as possible. And honestly, the link's really long, so look at it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, the, it's the best idea. And yeah, 100% vouch. Like, it was it was absolutely readable. It felt like I was sitting down to, yeah, to read, you know, the, the books that we love so much when they come out. Uh, so absolutely, I think you did a fantastic job putting it together. Thank you. All right, folks. Thanks so much for being with us today. And uh, everybody at home, hope you enjoyed listening. Okay, now we're getting funny. All right, great show, everybody. That was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was so nice. much fun. I, I feel like I learned a lot very, very quickly, and that was awesome. And it, and it wasn't just dictionary words. It was actually real things. There was one that slipped by me where, I, I, and no kidding, a big word got said, and my brain went, ow. And then before I could ask about it, another big word got said, and it just, we had to go. We'll do a pop-up video episode. Pop-up video.